Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, so I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. I would like to begin my ministry of the word uh, in this new year by looking together at our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us, and really this is the reason we are here, isn't it? It's why we gather on the Lord's Day morning, because of Jesus and because of what he has done for us. And really it it drives and determines who we are as individuals, as Christians, and shapes who and what we are as a church as well. And this this is the gospel. This is the cause. This is the name. This is the message. This is everything that gives us the reason that we are here. And so we're going to look together at Luke chapter 23. Jesus had had entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, riding on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy. The crowd had shouted, Hosanna to the king. He ate the last supper with his disciples. He went to the garden of Gethsemane. He was arrested, and then he was tried and sentenced to die. We are going to look today at Calvary. And I would like you to think about what you see when you look at Calvary. And of course, I mean look in the sense of imagine it, think about it in your mind, picture it based on the information and descriptions that we have here in Scripture. Luke sums it up for us in Luke chapter 23. And I'm just going to read for now verse 33. So look with me, please. At Luke chapter 23, verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. I would like us today to look at Calvary, not just the place Not even just the people, although, of course, the people are very significant, but the truths behind them. I want us to look at Calvary and understand. So what do you see when you look at Calvary? I'm not going to be uh, showing points on the screen. I think these will be simple enough. You'll be able to, um, to track with them, and if you'd like to jot them down, hopefully you'll be able to do that. But I hope more than, more than, than receiving these as, as information that these will impress your hearts. What do we see when we look at Calvary? Well, first of all, we see that God had a plan. God had a plan. There, they crucified him. What was there? A place called Calvary. Calvary is an interesting word. We only use it in connection with where Jesus died. That's Calvary. Of course, sometimes churches are named Calvary. But it's referring to the location and the the precise hill on which Jesus was crucified. The the, the Greek word is kranion, like we think of cranium. The Aramaic word was Golgotha. The Latin word, which the Romans would have used, is, is calvarius. It all refers to a place that's described as the place of a skull. That might be because that this site resembled the shape of a skull, or it might be because it was a place of death. 
But this is the place called Calvary. It was a small mountain, about 2,500 feet above sea level. Mountains are beautiful. I love to just, just gaze at a mountain scene. And mountains are sprawled around our world, the Rockies, the Alps, the Andes, the Pyrenees, the Himalayas, grand mountain ranges that are lofty and just fill the horizon with beauty. Do you know that God made those? Listen to Psalm 65, verse 6. He established the mountains by his strength. The idea of that word is he put them in place by his strength. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, who brought them forth? Or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The unchanging father of lights that we've been focusing on and singing about this morning is the one who brought these mountains forth and who formed them. And when he did, he formed those grand mountain ranges, but he also formed a relatively unremarkable hilly region near the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, the area we know of as the land of Israel. And God had a plan. Our creator God, our everlasting God, had a plan that included one of those hills. God not only made the world, he made mankind, didn't he? He made the first man and woman and placed them in a spectacular garden, a pristine paradise. And he made the human species in order to share his infinite perfections with them, to display his glory. And this first man and woman made a tragic choice. And by their disobedience, they brought the curse of God upon the human race. So we are doomed to live and die as sinners. That could have been the end of the story, couldn't it? But God's marvelous, infinite plan provided for that worst-case scenario. While Satan might have seemed like he had won the battle of Eden, his arsenal contains nothing that matches the infinite wisdom and everlasting love of our God. So this plan unfolded. Not over the course of months or even years, but over millennia, thousands of years. But during that length of time, the movements of men and nations and the lives of individuals, from shepherds, lowly shepherds to to mighty kings, what we might see as the trivial affairs of life as well as earth-shaking events in the world, the acts of submission by mankind as well as even acts of rebellion by mankind, all synchronized, all meshed, all clicked into perfect arrangement and sequence in the plan of God. And when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
God's plan to display his glory and to reconcile his creatures to himself required his son to take upon himself humanity, to announce the terms of the kingdom of God, to gather and train a few good men who would then carry on the work that he had begun. And then another worst case scenario, the people he came to help turned on him. They fabricated charges. They pressured the Roman occupying officials to arrest Jesus and to try him. And in the ultimate act of human injustice, he was sentenced to die. Did Satan win? Did somehow his kingdom employ human agents to to thwart the plan of God? No, actually, Jesus' death was the plan of God. The day that God cursed Adam and Eve, he promised the seed of the woman would deal a death blow to Satan. And even when this this seed was born, the angels announced he will save his people from their sins. And this plan was was unfolding. And now here here it was in plain view. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem. And he said, all the things written by the prophets, all part of the plan, concerning the Son of Man, shall be accomplished. What things? He shall be delivered unto the Gentiles. He shall be mocked, spitefully treated, spit on. They'll scourge him. They'll put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. Peter then Proclaimed after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that although men had taken Jesus and with wicked hands slain him, that he was in fact, Jesus was delivered by what Peter said, what he described as the determinate counsel, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan. So God made Adam and Eve knowing that he would give his son to redeem them from the curse of sin, and he created a hill called Calvary, knowing it would be the place where Jesus would suffer and die. So when you look at Luke 23, 33, where it says there, referring to the place called Calvary, it's a reminder that God had a plan. When we look at Calvary, we also see that people have personal responsibility. People have personal responsibility. The next word in this four-word phrase, there they crucified him, there they crucified him. Who is they? Well, we know for sure it included the Roman soldiers, didn't it? They were the ones who had arrested him and scourged him. They were the ones who forced him to climb Calvary under the weight of the cross as far as he was able. They were the ones who nailed his hands and feet to those beams with spikes, who posted the instrument of death with Jesus hanging from it in a hole in the ground. Those were the ones who supervised this process and ran a spear into his side to make sure he had actually died. But again, Peter provides us with a different perspective. Sure, the the they included the Roman soldiers, but, but Peter assigned a greater guilt to the religious leaders who had instigated 
Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Listen to what he said, recorded for us in Acts chapter 5, verse 30. He said to those religious leaders, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, so he was declaring the resurrection of Jesus, but then he said, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. So he was assigning guilt to those Jewish religious leaders. But he expanded the the circle, didn't he? In, in Acts chapter 3, again, he's, he's talking to the, the people who had gathered in Jerusalem around the time of Pentecost. And he said, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you, he said to the crowd, delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He said, you denied the Holy One and the just. You killed the Prince of Life. So they bore personal responsibility. When we look at Calvary, we see personal responsibility, don't we? But that responsibility doesn't just rest only on people from the distant past. People within the Jewish nation or even the Roman government. It reaches all the way through history to you and me. That personal responsibility. Your and my hands did not crucify Jesus. Your and my voice did not call for the death of Jesus, but our sins did. Your sins and mine are the reason Jesus was crucified. You'll recognize these words. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How did Jesus respond to the ones with blood on their hands? Well, one of his responses was to pray to his heavenly Father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And just as Jesus had a heart of forgiveness toward those immediately, presently, directly responsible for everything that he was going through at that time, he also will forgive you and me. The personal responsibility weighs on us, but the forgiveness is also available to us, isn't it? There's a great old gospel song written by John Wyatt, who wrote, I scourged the back of Jesus. With thorns, I crowned his head. I cursed and I mocked him. I longed to see him dead. I laughed with scorn as I followed him up the path to Calvary. I nailed his hands upon a cross, and his blood ran at my feet. But, the chorus says, still he loved me. Near death forgave me. By grace he saved me from all my sin. My heart is filled with pain as I behold the stain his blood has made for me at Calvary. So personal responsibility. Everyone here, every boy, every girl, 
every man, every woman, is responsible for your sins. We are guilty. Your sins are why Jesus died on Calvary. He was dying for you. And just like he prayed for forgiveness for those who crucified him, he offers forgiveness for your sins to you. Forgiveness means they are pardoned. It means they are erased. It means you are declared not guilty. It means you no longer have to pay the penalty for your sins. And he can promise to do this because of what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary and because of the fact that he not only died, but he also rose victorious from the grave, didn't he? So when you look at Calvary, you see God had a plan. You see people have personal responsibility. And then, thirdly, you see sin has a price. Sin has a price. There they crucified him. People have attempted to describe the agonies of the crucifixion. There are even descriptions written by medical doctors detailing the anguish of the crucifixion. Hollywood has attempted to depict the horrors of the crucifixion, but it's impossible to capture it in words or even images that we can understand and fully appreciate. It was the Roman method of execution designed to make lawbreakers pay an awful price for their crimes. But on that day, it was so much more than just the penalty for a crime, wasn't it? Jesus' crucifixion put on display the price of sin. We see the physical price of sin when we see his agony, the torment he underwent, and death, because the wages of sin is death. We see the emotional price of sin, the anguish, the emotional and psychological trauma of being humiliated and scorned and rejected. We don't like it when somebody just says something unkind to us or, or doesn't notice us or or perform some hurtful act that affects us. He was the object of the scorn and fury of the mob and of his own people. We see the judicial price of sin. The judge of all the earth pronounced his own son guilty of man's sins, passed sentence, and executed it fully on Jesus. We see the spiritual price of sin. The pure, holy Son of God took sin upon himself. And as Paul describes in words that are somewhat difficult for us to comprehend, he became sin for us. Theologians have attempted to fathom what that means. I think it's just the idea that to the fullest extent possible and still remain the holy, pure Son of God, 
he experienced in and on himself, in his being, the sins of mankind, the sinfulness of mankind. He never sinned. He was not a sinner, but as much as is possible to the full extent possible and still remain the holy, pure Son of God, he took sin, our sins, upon and within himself. He paid the spiritual price of sin. And we see the relational price of sin. Sin separates, doesn't it? And sin separated Jesus Christ from his heavenly Father. To the extent that he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we see the eternal price of sin. When we look at Calvary, crucifixion left marks. And even when Jesus was raised from the dead in a glorified body, he bore the scars of the nails in his hands and feet and the spear wound in his side. We don't know this for sure, but some say that because this was his glorified body that he inhabits and and occupies while he is now in heaven, that he still bears those scars. We know Revelation describes him as the lamb, as the one who had been slain. Possibly there is that visible indication and representation of his suffering. We don't know that for sure. But certainly after he rose from the dead in his glorified body, he still bore those scars. Because you and I are personally responsible for our sin, the reality is we deserve to pay the physical price, the emotional price, the judicial price, the spiritual price, the relational price, and the eternal price for sin. But Jesus paid it all. As he was dying, he cried, It is finished, declaring, paid in full. And he satisfied the justice of God so you and I can go free. He proved his victory over sin and all that his death represented for us when he rose from the dead. God has a plan. We are all responsible for our sins. Sin has an awful price, which Jesus paid for us. What in the world would compel God to subject his son to this? What would compel Jesus to submit himself to all of this? What force could hold him to the cross? When we look at Calvary, we see, fourthly, Jesus has great love. Jesus has great love. There they crucified him. Jesus, God's son. The supreme act of love is to die so somebody else can live. In fact, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus' love shown to us on the cross went much further than laying down his life for his friends. In fact, listen to how Paul describes our condition 
when Jesus was dying for us. It's not friends. Romans 5, verse 6, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The furthest thing from being like Jesus, being connected to Jesus, being on friendly terms with Jesus. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We crossed the line. We broke the laws. We offended his holiness. Jesus wasn't laying down his life for a worthy cause or for a cherished family member or a loyal friend. When he died, he took the place of sinners. All of us who have broken the laws of God and offended the holiness of God and deserve the wrath of God. In fact, a few verses later in Romans 5 verse 10, Paul says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son ungodly, sinners, enemies of God. What a great love that compelled him to lay his life down for people like that. Somehow, we are the objects of the great love of God. And we can just marvel at it. We can praise him for it. We can understand that because that's what motivated him to give himself for us, that we, if you're a Christian, can love him in return and love him with all your heart and and devote your life to him out of love. When you look at Calvary, you see God had a plan. People have responsibility. Sin has a price. And Jesus has great love. Now, it's helpful to know those things, isn't it? But that's just the beginning. You have to act on what you know. So when you look at Calvary, you can also see that you have a choice. You have a choice. Look again at verse 33. After the words, there they crucified him. You see this... Description of people who were there being crucified with him, don't you? There were two of them, and the criminals. One on the right hand, and the other on the left. Jesus was on the cross in the center. On each side of him, a condemned criminal was being executed as well. Now, these were crime-hardened men. They were facing their death with bitter anger. And the hostility of the crowd that was unleashing its fury on Jesus energized their own anger and bitterness, and they, they, they let it out, and they unleashed it on Jesus as well. They turned their mockery and their hatred toward him. But as the hours on Calvary wore on, Luke highlights a conversation that shows us that something changed. These two criminals and Jesus are hanging above the crowd on their respective crosses, and a conversation is taking place. Look at verse 39. 
Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. I'm going to put this in my own words a little bit. If you're so great, use your superpowers. Get us off these crosses. But the other, verse 40, answering, rebuked him, meaning the other criminal, saying, do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's saying, hey, don't you fear God? God is worthy of our our reverence, our respect. We're guilty and we know it. This man, Jesus, is innocent. And, And then he turns to Jesus in verse 42, and he speaks to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Will you help me? I don't deserve it. I can't do anything to to merit your favor. Here I am. But I'm, I'm asking. And I'm believing. And I think you can give what I'm asking. Again, I'm putting, putting this in my own words. I'm describing what may have been going on in this man's heart and mind. What his words signify to us. And Jesus answers in verse 43, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus said, yes, I grant your request. You're going to heaven. What a moment. As we look at these two criminals on Calvary, think about the differences between them. The first criminal was proud, and he stayed proud. The second criminal became humble. The first one doubted. The second one believed. The first was flippant. The second was reverent toward God. The first ignored his guilt. The second admitted his guilt. The first one was blind to who Jesus was. The second one recognized Jesus for who he was. The first was concerned about his life. The second was concerned about his soul. The first one, as far as we know, died in his sin and went to hell. The second received eternal life and went to heaven. There are two kinds of people, aren't there? I don't know the hearts of everybody here. It's possible there are these same two kinds of people here. You know the facts about Calvary. You know the truth about Jesus. But you might be proud, unbelieving, more concerned about your temporal life than your eternal life and in danger of dying and going to hell. It's possible. I believe there are those here today who have humbled themselves, who recognize Jesus for who he is, who are concerned about their eternal life, who have believed on him and are going to heaven. 
You have a choice, don't you? And the choice is to bow your heart before God, admit your sin, and believe in Jesus to save you. We have boys and girls here. I was eight years old when a friend of mine said, Dean, have you ever accepted Jesus as your Savior? My nine-year-old friend. I said, no. He started sharing the gospel with me. He evangelized me. And God used him to bring me as an eight-year-old boy to the place where I believed in Jesus to save me. Some guys and girls here, young men and women, Whatever your age may be, this is a choice you need to make if you have not already. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. What do you see when you look at Calvary? Do you see that God's grand plan to save people from sin includes you? Do you see that your sins are the reason Jesus died on the cross? Do you see the awful price of sin and that Jesus paid it in full for you? Do you begin to fathom the width and the length and the depth and the height. As Paul says in Ephesians 3, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Does your appreciation for his love for you grow? And does it impact you? Does it fan the flame and kindle the fire of love and devotion and dedication and obedience and service to him out of a love for him? Will you choose to trust Jesus as your Savior? Will you, as a believer, live for this Jesus as your Lord? I'd like us to just quietly bow our heads together. No musicians yet, please. Just stay where you are for a minute. Would you continue in a thought and a heart of thinking about what you just heard and you in your heart respond to your Heavenly Father, to your God, to your Savior. And maybe it's just to say thank you. If the choice that you, as a boy or girl, young person, adult today, is to Admit that you have sinned against God and believe in Jesus to save you from your sins. You can do that now. You can just tell him. God, I've sinned against you. I know it. I believe, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. Please forgive me for my sins and give me eternal life. He will do it. Maybe there are other ways that you know you need to follow Christ. Maybe it is having conversations with unbelievers around you about these 
simple, powerful truths about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Maybe you want to pray for names that come to your mind right now of people you know who don't have Christ as their Savior. And will you pray that the message, the power, the plans, the focus, the testimony and reputation of this church will be Christ crucified. We are so grateful, Father. Help our love to grow. I thank you for all that you have blessed us with in Jesus. In his name, amen.